the slides behind me. If you do not have a Bible, but you'd like to use a Bible, there is one in the seat in front of you. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, please come find me after service. I want to make sure you don't leave here today without a Bible in your hand so we can take care of that. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 2 this morning, and while you're flipping there or getting it out and ready, I want to share with you an article that I read recently, a couple months ago, that has been on my mind a lot uh, lately. And the article was talking about the importance of having personal mantras or personal statements. And what the article was getting at was that the more we repeat something to ourselves or the more we say something, the more likely we are to believe it. Well, I think common experience would probably tell us all that much. But the article was talking about sort of the neuroscience behind it. So the brain chemicals and the neural pathways and all kinds of things I'm probably not qualified to talk to you about. But it was talking about how, like I said, the more often we say something, the more likely we are to believe it. And so most of you know what kind of a mantra is or a little personal statement. Sometimes they're more creative than others. And so we say things like, the sky's the limit. But I think most of the time when we have little personal mantras, they're really just kind of a little short statement to try and get ourselves through the day. And so we tell ourselves things like, I'm strong. I'm courageous. I'm a good person. I'm kind. I'm generous. I'm thankful. Or maybe we say something like this. I am stronger than my addictions. These sayings all sound great. And I wish they were all true. But I think in each one of these statements is a kind of expectation or standard that we make for ourselves. But what happens when we fail to live up to our own expectations? What happens when we fail to live up to the standards of others? What happens when we can't muster the courage to overcome our fears or the strength to overcome our addictions or that jealousy just doesn't go away and crowds out the thankfulness in our hearts? What happens when we can't help but compare our apparent failures to all the successes of other people? I think inevitably, we are overcome with shame and guilt and despair. We start to become numb to any real sense of purpose or meaning for our lives, and maybe if you're a Christian here this morning, you start to doubt that God's promises to you are still true. I believe that many of you have come in here with a burden of shame this morning. Because shame is a downward spiral. Our shame convinces us that it's something that we need to hold on to as if it were something that were good for us. But then, as it starts to erode at our soul, we tell ourselves that sin is the remedy. Maybe a little overindulgence here, or maybe a little watching something I shouldn't over there, that'll make me feel better. And that just perpetuates the shame. And so the cycle continues. 
And what we need then is something that can break our destructive habits, something that can break the downward spiral of shame. You see, we don't just need any mantra or statement to tell ourselves. We need statements that are true, always true, regardless of how we feel, regardless of what we've done, or regardless of what has been done to us. That means we need truth to come from outside of us, not from inside of us. The passage that we're going to read here this morning in just a minute is a passage which contains a rich and dense doctrine of the incarnation of Christ. And the incarnation of Christ is the term we use to talk about Christ becoming man and putting on human flesh. The task for us this morning is to connect that doctrine, that belief, that teaching with our everyday faith and practice. There are many sort of places we could go this morning with that doctrine, but I don't know if any are more simple, are more beautiful, or more powerful than this. That because of the incarnation, we don't need to live a life of shame or guilt anymore but we can instead live a life of freedom in the love of God for us in Jesus Christ. And so my sermon this morning is simple. It's one point. It's one mantra. It's one statement that you can take with you every minute of every day and know that it is true. And that point is this. Jesus is better than your shame. Jesus is better than your shame. In Jesus, our destructive cycle of shame is broken. And so my hope for us in our time together this morning as we study this text is that you will leave here with ample reason to know with certainty that Jesus is better than your shame. So let's jump in to Hebrews chapter 2. We'll be starting in verse 5. The author says this, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone." For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. 
Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham." Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word. And this morning we ask that your spirit would speak to us through your word that you would cause all of us to sit under your word and not over it, not to think ourselves so wise, but to be students of your word that we might conform more and more into the image of your son. I pray for all of us here who are struggling this morning with shame and guilt that you would speak to us and restore our hearts that we might believe more and more the love that you have for us in your Son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So I want to just quickly recap Hebrews chapter 1 for you because our verses in Hebrews chapter 2 pick off where our author left off in Hebrews chapter 1. And so in the first chapter of this book, our author asserts verse after verse that Jesus is superior to the angels as the Son of God. He is superior in every way to the angels. And so now in chapter 2, where our author is going is he is saying that this same Jesus, who although he was superior to the angels, he willingly made himself lower than the angels in order that he might redeem his people back to God. You see, in Hebrews chapter 2, we learn what it took for Jesus to save his people, namely to come, becoming man, putting on human flesh, going through the things that we go through, suffering the things we suffer, being tempted by the things that we're tempted by, tasting death on our behalf in order that he might bring us back to God. It's in this identification of Jesus with us in his union with us, that we learn this powerful truth, that Jesus is better than our shame. And we can be rid of our shame once and for all because of Christ's union and identification with us. And so let's unpack this a little bit more in detail. I want to look at verses 5 through 9 here to begin. And in verses 5 through 9, our author quotes from Psalm 8 which we already read from in our service this morning. And we're not going to go back and study Psalm 8 in detail. If we did, I'd be preaching two sermons, and I'd love to do that, but we don't have time. So if we were to go back and study Psalm 8 in detail, what we would find is that Psalm 8 is a hymn which celebrates God for his work in creation. And at the height of this creation is us. It's mankind. What is man that you are mindful of him, O God? What is the son of man that you care for us? It's a celebration 
that God would crown us with glory and honor and purpose. But we have to ask the question, why does our author in Hebrews chapter 2 quote from Psalm 8 here? Well, what the author is doing is he's rehearsing the gospel story for us. He's reminding us how we were created. We were created with this honor and dignity and purpose to rule over creation with all of the world in subjection to us. But something has gone wrong. Look with me at verse 8. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Things are not the way they are supposed to be. When sin entered the world, the world broke. Or as the theologians like to say, it became jacked up. It's a messed up place. After all, I think we could relate to that. We look around this world and there's conflict between man and man every day. Disease. Natural disaster everywhere. Something has gone wrong. Things are not the way they are supposed to be. John Calvin, a Reformation theologian, he said that when sin entered the world, the world became a frightful deformity of what it was supposed to be. And it's into this mess that Jesus comes and he fully identifies with his people you see, Psalm 8 tells us of how we were supposed to be with, crowned with glory and honor and dignity. And although not entirely lost, something of that purpose and dignity was destroyed at the fall. But in Jesus, by coming to take on our flesh and going through the things that we go through, suffering the things we suffer, tasting death on our behalf, he is now crowned with glory and honor. So when we look to Jesus, we see mankind as we were supposed to be, as you and I will one day become in glory. When we look to him, when we look to this Jesus who fulfills everything that Psalm 8 promises, we see that sin, misery, and shame no longer have power over us. So, dear Christian, Jesus is better than your shame because by fully uniting himself to us, he restores to us the dignity, honor, and purpose for which we were created. Now look with me at verse 10. I'm going to try and paraphrase verse 10 in a way that might be a little bit more helpful for us. For it was fitting to the character and purposes of God the Father that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many of his sons to glory, that he should make Jesus Christ, who is the founder of their salvation, perfect through suffering. So if the verse makes a little bit more sense for us, here's the big million dollar question. What does it mean 
that Jesus was made perfect through suffering? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked. Well, the phrase make perfect through suffering, that verb there, make perfect, it has numerous Old Testament references. And so pretty much any time in the Greek Old Testament, when you read the word ordained, that's the same verb as we see here in our passage in Hebrews chapter 2. So when our author says that Jesus was made perfect through suffering, what he means is that he was ordained to his office as priest. Let me just go back and read one verse for you from the Old Testament so you can see what I'm talking about here. Numbers 3, verse 3. You can just write this down if you want. Numbers 3, 3 says this. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, the anointed priests, whom he ordained to serve as priests. And so in Hebrews chapter 2, when our author says made perfect, he's not saying that some sort of quality was added to Jesus that he didn't have before, but he became fully equipped to be a priest for his people. And we know this is what our author is talking about because one of the major themes of the book of Hebrews is the high priesthood of Christ. We even saw at the end of our passage in chapter 2 that we have a high priest in Jesus. What does this mean for us? When we are overcome by feelings of shame, we become convinced that we're unlovable, don't we? All we can think about is our failures. And we say to ourselves, how could anyone love a miserable failure like me? And if nobody else loves me, then how could a God love me? A failure like me. Do you remember the woman at the well, her story in John chapter 4? She came to the well at the heat of the day to get water because she was so ashamed of her lifestyle of pursuing men that she was completely isolated from the other women who came in the cool of the morning. She came by herself because she couldn't face the shame that she felt. But do you remember the empathy and the tenderness and the care with which Jesus came and approached her? He came to her and he said, Dear woman, I am the living water which can satisfy you. I am the perfect husband that your soul longs for. And in that moment with her sin and her shame laid bare, in that moment of her most extreme exposure, she was known and she was loved and she was spoken for. See, friends, this is what it means to have a priest who is fully equipped for his office. It means we have a priest who knows us, everything we've done, everything that has been done to us. And it means that he still loves us. And it means that even now as our high priest, 
he is interceding for us on our behalf. Dear Christian, Jesus is better than your shame. Because regardless of how you feel this morning, you are loved, you are known, and you are spoken for by the God of the universe. Now look with me at verses 11 through 13. This is really the climax of our passage here this morning. We're getting a glimpse of what it's going to look like for the heavenly congregation to be ushered into the presence of God. Verse 11, the author says this, That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise Jesus sings for us. How wonderful. You know, I think most of us, when we think of what is heaven going to be like, we probably think of a world where God is up on his throne and we're still sort of in the back somewhere. And there's still this sort of separation between where God is seated and where his people are. You know why that is, right? Because our sin and shame has so confused us and clouded our vision that it's near impossible for us to conceive of a world of love where there is no longer separation. Separation between man and man and man and their God. But what our author is saying here is that one day our God will be in the midst of his people and his son will be singing his praises over us. Dear Christian, Jesus is better than your shame because he opens himself up to you and he sings for you. And now in verse 13, our author says, again, I will put my trust in him. Why is this significant? Jesus stands in the midst of his people and he says, I will trust in my God. If this Jesus, who was superior to the angels in every way, perfect communion with his Father, if he could come and take on our flesh and go through all the things that we go through, the dirt and the grime of this world, suffering our sufferings, being tempted by our temptations, tasting death for us. If he could go through all of that and still say, I trust in my God, then we can too. Dear Christian, Jesus is better than your shame because if Jesus still trusts in his God, then we can too. And that means that everything God says about us is true. Jesus stands in the midst of his people and he says, Behold, I and the children of God. Behold, my siblings and I. Behold, the ones that I love and that have been given to me and that I will never let go of. Behold, I am not ashamed to let the whole cosmos know that they belong to me and I to them. 
regardless of their past, regardless of what they've done, and regardless of what has been done to them. Dear Christian, Jesus is better than your shame because he is not ashamed of you and he will never let you go. Look with me at verses 14 through 18 now. Because the children, that is, the children of of whom Christ is not ashamed, because the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same things. And yes, that means Jesus assumed all of our human nature, yet he was without sin. And you know, there have been deniers of the incarnation since day one. Since the beginning of the New Testament church, there have been deniers of the incarnation. Read the book of 1 John. The spirit of the Antichrist is the one who denies that Christ came in the flesh. We read about it in the New Testament. And this was a heated early church debate. Did Christ really come and put on human flesh? And in response to all of the deniers, one early church father, Gregory of Nazianzus, a fun name to say, he said, that which was not assumed was not healed. That which was not assumed was not healed. And what he meant by that was, if Jesus did not become fully man, then there are parts of me which are not yet redeemed. And so Christians have believed for over 20 centuries that Christ really came and he became man in every way, putting on our flesh and our pain. He took on a reasonable human soul with fears and doubts and desires and emotions and all of it without sin. But, our author tells us, of a certain tyrant, this devil, who wields the power of death, not as one who created death, but as one who uses it as if it's a a hammer to bludgeon God's people into fear and submission. How sad and ironic is it that you and I, We were created for such dignity and honor to rule over creation with it being in subjection to us that we are now born into a state of subjection to this tyrant. But we have a champion who, by taking on flesh and blood, he destroyed the one who has the power of death, this tyrant. So, dear Christian, Jesus is better than your shame because he has freed you from the slavery and the bondage which causes it. Remember that we said Jesus was fully equipped for his office as high priest. He was perfected for this role by becoming like us. In defeating death, Jesus was raised to new life 
And even now, this morning, in this moment, is at God's right hand interceding for us. And so, for a moment, for a moment, be still. Be still. Do you believe that right now Christ is interceding for you, testifying to God of his love for you and that you belong to him? If you don't believe that, why not? Dear Christian, could it be that your shame has you so convinced of the lies that you are unloved? That you are an unknown entity to God? That you are somehow so filthy in his sight that there is no way he could possibly look at you in love this morning? Oh, dear Christian, you need to know this morning that you are loved, that you are known, and that you are accounted for by Christ. And whatever lies you're believing about your sense of self or sense of worth this morning are just that. They're lies. And so the invitation for you this morning is to receive the truth of Hebrews 2, to believe on this Christ, and to be rid of your burden of shame and guilt. But this invitation does not come without warning. I need to tell you the hard truth that everything I've said this morning about Jesus being better than our shame is only true for Christians. And so let me tell you why. Every sense of shame that we feel in this world is a consequence of sin, either our own sin or the sins of others against us. At its deepest level, the reason for our shame is because we know that our actions, our thoughts, our desires, our reactions, they're impure. They're unjust. They're self-righteous. They're greedy. They're corrupt. And although we tell ourselves things like, I'm good, I'm kind, I'm brave, I'm courageous. We know deep down these things aren't completely true. Shame is an indication that something has gone terribly wrong with this world. In our sin, we have lost the dignity and the honor and the purpose and the meaning for which we were created, not only to rule over this world, but also to love and be loved by our Creator. And to make matters worse, when we give in to our shame, 
it only further alienates us and isolates us from God. I want you to know this morning that shame is the opposite of grace. Shame destroys. Shame causes pain. It wounds and it isolates. It causes us to disintegrate in silence as we are overcome with feelings of worthlessness and rejection. But grace, God's grace is a love which seeks us out when we have nothing to give in return. It is a love which comes to us when we are unlovable. It turns despair into hope. It transforms, it heals, it cures, and it restores. The warning this morning is that apart from Christ, sin and shame will have its victory over you. And if that's you this morning, if you do not know Christ, the invitation stands for you just as it does for every Christian in this room. Believe on Jesus and everything he has will be yours. Dear friends, by uniting himself to us and identifying with us, Jesus proves that your shame doesn't have the last say in your life. When we have received Christ in faith, his grace does. This is the truth which comes from outside of us. It is the truth we need to believe, to sustain, and to guide us until we see him as he is, face to face in glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which tells us that we do not need to live a life that is filled with this downward, burdensome spiral of shame. We don't need to go sin hunting in our lives to look for causes of why We feel so dirty or so filthy or so rotten because we know that we are loved and we are spoken for and we are accounted for in Christ. Oh God, help our unbelief this morning that we may leave here with confidence to know that we don't need to hold on to our shame anymore and that we can be confident in your love for us in Jesus Christ. I pray for anyone here who is uncertain about the truthfulness of your word, is uncertain, is uncertain about the incarnation. I pray that by your spirit you would make yourself known to them and that they would come to you so that they too can experience the freedom that can only be found in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.